Hi everyone, Jeff Lander here from Game Tech. Today we are featuring a talk I gave at Harry S. Truman Middle School in Fontana. There was a great group of 100 or so 7th and 8th grade students. Since I give talks like this periodically, I'd love to get feedback on it. Send comments to gtt at game-tech.com. Also, slides from the talk are available on the website at www.game-tech.com. So here's the talk. That's fine. Good afternoon. Uh, as Jan said, uh, my name is Jeff Lander, and yes, I do uh, play games for a living. Um, and what I'm going to talk to you about is all the work and uh, all the fun and work that we do when we create these kind of games. So the, one of the most recent games we worked on was Shrek 2. It took about 40 people to work on this title. It came out last Christmas and has sold about 5 million copies uh, worldwide. And we did it in... Uh, seven different languages. We did it in English, Spanish, French, Italian, Swedish, of all things. And it was a very big game project, uh, basically allowed people to play with a team of people, uh, Shrek, Donkey, Fiona, and you could switch out. There'd be uh, Gingerbread Man and different people. So, uh, And it was a fun project to work on. We got to work very closely with the studios. Uh, so that's kind of the kind of thing that we work on. And so what I'm going to talk about is what does it take to make one of these projects. Now, when I started working on computer video games, and many of you probably have never seen anything like this, but this is what we got to play with, we, a game like Pong, where it was just a little lines up and down, and we were amazed by it. And in fact, I have a box from one of the early Atari games that was baseball, and it was little stick figures of baseball that looked not unlike this. And the box actually said, with the most amazing realistic graphics and animation, and it looked like that. So, but what we're talking about now, this is, well, we'll go over the history of this, but what we're going to talk about is what did we take to get from here, and then this is where we're at now. This is the level of realism we're doing, and this is a fight night, a boxing game that's coming out, uh, and with incredible realism, you can see like particles of sweat coming off them, and, and just really starting to look incredibly realistic, so... Mm. So we started out in 1977 is one of the earliest commercial games, uh, the Atari 2600. Many of you have seen it. Now they sell the Atari 2600 joysticks that just the joystick itself has all of the games on it. That's how much things have changed. But when we started, a lot of this information is a little bit extra, but our team sizes to do these kind of games were really small. It only took one, two, maybe five people to do them. Get up to the Sega Genesis in 1989. Uh, a little bit more realistic graphics, Sonic the Hedgehog. Everybody knows Sonic, right? Everyone's seen Sonic. Um, so that was the birth of Sonic the Hedgehog, and he's been around since 1989. Uh, then the Sony PlayStation came out with, which I'm sure all of you are familiar with. Um, to do PlayStation games, the team sizes grew a lot. The budgets went in the million-dollar range for the first time, and you started to get real teams doing 3D art and graphics, and these are some of the kinds of games that we've got on the PlayStation. Uh, then the PlayStation 2 comes out in 2000, just a few years ago, and it's still selling now. All you know way a lot about the PlayStation. But again, the level of graphics gone up. But it's interesting to note, like, the amount of money we spend developing those games is now in the 5 to $12 million range. So these games are incredibly expensive to make, as much as almost some of these feature film movies. And the team sizes are in 15 to 100 people to make these projects. Uh, and then we're coming up on the PlayStation 3, which is going to be the next next gen, maybe next year. 
And uh, team sizes of 50 and more is going to be the norm. So 50 people. You think going, starting from games where it only took two or three of us, and now we need teams of 50. My, my company I'm working with now, we have currently 80 people working on one game. So uh, that's kind of the level. And the budgets are $8 million plus. We don't know. Really, the sky's the limit on how much money we'll spend on these. And sales, uh, you know, we hope to sell millions of copies of everything. So. I did want to go over what kind of jobs. As I said, it used to only take two or three people to do these things, but now it takes a huge team. So we've got people that do all kinds of different things in the games. We have people who do the programming, actually make the game, do the gameplay. We have art artists who make all the models, who make all the paintings, the backgrounds. Uh, we have guys that do sound. We have guys that design the layout of the game. Um, Production people are the ones who keep the schedules, and there's testers. Uh, some of you may have even participated in game testing. Uh, in Santa Monica, where I work, they bring a lot of school children in to play the games to see if it's fun, to give us some feedback. Um, we also have people who do sound. The sound is like full music scores, sound effects. Uh, it's almost like a movie. We have 3D positional sound, and we have guys that choreograph. In, in our latest game, we have a guy who makes different sound effects for the footsteps. So when the guy walks, you can hear the difference of him walking on metal or wood or all that. So there's a guy who goes out and captures all those sounds and makes it sound really good. And then you got all the kind of people that you need just to do any kind of business, especially a high-tech business. The IT people are the people who run our computer system. Finance people make sure our budgets work, uh, marketing, legal, office support. And it comes in a wide range, and, and the salaries for these people is pretty good. You, you, in the 40000 to 150000 range and up, it just, uh, it's pretty good living. And, and the other thing that's really interesting for you guys is that this business is really, California is really the heart of the game development business, both uh, Southern California and Northern California around the Bay Area good 80% of all the games made are made right here in California. So it's a huge industry for California. It employs a lot of people. Uh, so what do we do when we actually go to make one of these projects? One of these games, like I showed you Shrek, that takes anywhere from a year to a year and a half to two years to make. And that's, that's all you do all day long is work on that. And there's people who work on each aspect of that. So the way we do it is we come up with an idea, we t tell it to the people who have the money, because like I said, it costs $5 million to make it, and I, I don't have that kind of money. So we go to people and we pitch the idea, we work on designs, we do some artwork, we uh, then start working on it, actually making all the models and making all the sets and making all the animation. And that takes anywhere from a year to two years, and then another six months of making it fun. And that's that last bit. So it's really, I just wanted to stress that it's really a big project that does take a lot of people's, uh, a lot of time. The other cool thing about the game industry is it's there, that basically everybody can get involved in it. There's no discrimination. If you, the one thing that we require is that people uh, are passionate about what they do and that they know, have the technical skills. And this is where, why I'm here talking to you is we like to try to bring up people that have the technical skills that can, can do this kind of work. Uh, you need to be able to exceed the entry requirements, just meaning that we have to uh, do what it takes. You have to be able to write the programs, create the art. If you're good at drawing, we have people that they just sketch all day. They do concept work. Um, we have way too few women, and I'm going to get back to that, uh, but they're very welcome. The women who work in the industry love the industry, but there's just not too many of them. I, I know many of you uh, young ladies out there would 
say, maybe when you were younger you liked video games, and maybe you still do now, and some of you say, oh, that's just boy stuff. And, uh, and some of that is, what what's that's caused is there's a lot fewer women in this industry than there could be, and that leads to you finding games that maybe you, they, we're not making the kind of games that you would like, and that's just because there's not enough women in the business. Um, but we do recruit from all over the world. Um, at my current company, we have people from all around the country. Um, 20% uh, of most companies have people that are from abroad, from Europe or Scandinavia or Japan. Uh, we have people from India, Russia, all over the world. And the reason that we have all those people is that we just don't have enough people to do this work. We need to get people like you interested in this thing, working on it. And it is, it is like making a movie in a lot of ways. Uh, they're, they're, uh, as we get near the end of production, there's a lot of long hours and things. So this is just all the business stuff, and it's not very interesting. But I did, did want to mention the one thing about women in games, is this is a little chart that, that we just did a study on this, and 88% of the people working in game development are male, and only 11% are female. And you see, um, on the other side, it's a breakdown of what jobs they do. And the women, it's pretty even when you work in the uh, hiring department and writing and marketing and things like that. But you look down there at the bottom of programming, which is what I do. Um, I'm a computer programmer. 95% of the programmers are male and 5% are female. And believe me, those 5% of women that are programmers are very popular. The, the guys love to get the female programmers on the team. Because uh, they give a, a really, really good ideas, and it's just fun to have. But to get into these kind of things, education is the key. It's a very technical business. And I'm going to get into uh, why we use this kind of technical and learning after we look at some fun stuff. But, but this is what's good for you to know. The kind of math and science that we do is the kind of math and sciences that you're learning right now. Uh, the skills that you're learning in algebra and you'll be learning in trigonometry and geometry, that's what we do all day. And, and although you can go on and, and if you're really passionate about math, go all the way up and take nuclear physics and all that kind of things, that's not the kind of stuff we do. I, in fact, I spent a lot of my time reading my high school uh, algebra book just to remember how the, some of the formulas, and I'll go over some of that stuff. The kind of physics we do is this kind of physics. We do something dropping on the ground. That, that's about the level of the physics that we do in games. So it's, uh, it's not really that hard once you get past it. In fact, advanced high school level is pretty much ideal for what um, the people that we work with, that's kind of the level we do. So um, a lot of the guys who come out of college and have been working on a really high level math, they have to relearn some of the stuff they've forgotten. So the kind of problems we solve are mathematics, scientific, as well as artistic. So let's start with something uh, kind of fun to show you. This is the kind of stuff that we do. And we have discussions about this kind of thing all day. So here's, this is called the reach. And, and this will give you an example. And some of you may recognize this. This is something that I did just to show off this technique. But the, what we're trying to show here is something you do commonly in video games is you might want a character to reach for something, right? Um, you might want to go out and grab it. Let me see if, and I'm going to run this little program that is the reach. And you'll see, wherever I click and drag, the guy like reaches for it. And in fact, if I click too far away, it's going to say not reachable, meaning he can't actually get out that far. But that's the kind of thing, and this is just a simple demonstration, but you think, wow, that's something I could see how it would be real handy in a game to have somebody pick up something. Uh, and, and it turns out that that's really an interesting problem, and 
And some of the things that we do a lot is look at these kind of things. And when, when you reach for something, what you're using, we call it a degree of freedom. And each bone, you think of your elbow, and that's a, that elbow has a degree of freedom. And if you look at these two examples, this is like a, a shock absorber on a car and like a ruler. And certain things like your wrist, you can kind of move it all around in all different directions. But your elbow, you can only kind of bend this way. You can't turn it sideways, right? So we talk about, you think of your elbow, it's kind of like one of these rulers. And what we say is that only has one degree of freedom. It can only bend in one direction. So we spend a lot of time thinking about things like, if I want a character to move, is the arm more like a ruler or is it more like a, a piston or something like that? Now this is the scary bit. So what happens is you try to start solving this problem and you imagine these little things at the bottom are, is your arm. That's like your shoulder and your elbows at the base of the purple and the point you're trying to reach is at the top. And you actually have to do a little bit of math, it turns out. And, and it looks kind of scary, but it's all the stuff that you'll learn in geometry. And this is the kind of thing that w what I'm showing is that to do something really simple like reach for something takes a little bit of work for the programmers. Now, we're going to get to what the people who aren't doing the programming need to know about this. It's not like everybody at my work, most of the people at my work would look at this and just be scared and go running away and not want to talk to us. But um, these are really basic. In fact, this, this section right here, this is a little math thing that I don't remember. It's, but I, where I looked that up is I looked that up in my high school trig book. That's just a formula, but it turns out what that formula is really handy for is once you learn that, and you may not even see this in your book, you may not know, well, why would I ever need to know what this little formula is? Well, it turns out that formula is really handy for getting somebody to reach for something. So uh, we did the simple elbow, right, that was just bending, and that was able to reach, but what if we wanted something to do, uh, do something a little more, like I have this snake, there we go. Uh, so here's a, here's a little snake, and I want everywhere where I uh, go, I want its head to move. Now, whereas your arm only had one little chain, one little bone at the elbow and one at the shoulder, you can see, you can count them up that this snake has one, two, three, four, five different links where it can bend. So you can imagine if the elbow took that kind of math, how, how would it be if I try to do six. Well, it turns out we don't even have to do something quite so complex. We can do something smarter. We can, there, there's tricks that we can do. And, and as you start getting into the kind of game thing, the kind of problems that the artists and the programmers work on is how do we do these things really quick and really uh, intelligently and fast to be fun? But that's the kind of thing we think about. We think uh, the game designer, the you can imagine that this application, I'll show you again, you can see how, okay, well, if it was a snake and coming after you, how that make, might make sense. But have any of you ever played the game Pitfall or any of those games? You can imagine how this would be like a swinging vine, right? See, so we can use the same techniques for, and it really ends up being, we put this little tool in our little tool belt that's like, how do you bend this, this thing? And then we use it for all sorts of things. We use it for chains. We use it for snakes. If you've ever seen some of those games where uh, somebody has a whip or something, they use techniques like this. So what we do is we use these building blocks of pretty basic little pieces and put them together to make kind of stuff that's more fun. One other thing of math that we use all the time, and this is where I was talking about, um, there's a little formula here that, that again, uh, most people uh, that work with me and things don't remember this little formula, 
But this is the formula for how you figure out if you just drop something, how it falls. It just says that this is the height of the starting point. This is the v is the speed of how fast it's dropping, and g is gravity, and t is time. And that is like one of the most important and useful things we use. And I use that little formula, and then I just plug it in, and I forget about it, and then I can do cool stuff. So this is what I can do. And this is running real fast and maybe hard to see, but what that is is like a fountain, a sparkler. And, all's by, and that just has that one formula in it. But by just changing some of the parameters, you can see I can make like a comet trail, or I can make um, a, a, a sparkler, like at 4th of July. And all that's using the same exact thing. Uh, let's see, snowfall. I don't even remember. So this is just like when you play any kind of game and they show rain. We use this stuff all the time. So just using that little simple thing lets us do a lot of stuff. And the artists go, the artists go well, what I really want is an effect that's like rain and um, allows you to do this. So this little thing, I'm not even going to go through it, but this lets you, the designers edit all those parameters and they can make any kind of effect they want, right? They can make, uh, like I said, a fountain, um, star flight, this is, oh, that's really hard to see. That's like if you were on Star Trek and, and the stars were coming at you. Oh, steam, like a little steam jet. So if you we did that. So we use that all the time. And in fact, when I show you some of the Shrek stuff and the different things, you'll, you'll now be able to point out and go, wow, they use that same effect for everything. When you saw the sweat on the boxer earlier, they were just using that. And that's just one little tool. We learn the math once, we put it in the program, and then we use it for all sorts of things. And another easy thing you might look at is like a, a game of pool. It turns out that playing billiards where you hit two balls together is seems like it should be the most easy thing to do in the world but it turns out that it's it's got a little subtlety and some trickiness this little math at the bottom is kind of how you handle two billiard balls hitting together and what they do and it it ends up looking really complicated but then what happens is one programmer puts that in and then everybody uses it for all sorts of effects now, uh, a lot of you might be saying, I'm not really interested in being a computer programmer. That sounds like too much math. I know sometimes I say that, and I know a lot of my artists say that. Uh, and you say, well, I don't really need to know that, because what I want to do is I want to be an artist, and I just want to draw. Well, the question is, then, what, what kinds of math and science skills do you need if you don't want to be the one who writes all those programs, but you just want to be the one that uses it? Well, in, in something like making a game, we need to have a way to talk about the games. You saw that I had the, the little particles that flew apart. And the artist might say to me, oh, I want to make it go faster. Well, I, we need a language that we can speak to each other about. We need to be able to say, I want it to go 20 meters per second faster. Or we need to have a common language. And we use math as the common language. For example, I'll tell my artist... Uh, our artists will make a walk cycle. We call it a walk cycle. And all that is is the character walking, right? But we'll say, oh, in order to make him so he can turn and do all the different things, we want to walk of, uh, straight ahead, and then we want him to walk maybe at this diagonal, and we want him to be able to turn sideways. We want him to be able to move all around. So I'll tell the artist, I need uh, a walk that turns in eight different directions, maybe straight up and down each side and the 45-degree angles. So the artist needs to be able to go, okay, he needs this, so how do I set that up? And so he needs to know, oh, I need to put these 
these walks at 45 degree angles from each other. So we use that kind of language. When I talk to an artist, I say, oh, the he moves a little, he turns a little too much. Can you turn it back like 10 degrees? And that's the kind of things that we say all day. We use these words like Euler angles and IK and meters per second, and that's the kind of language that we speak at work. And we talk to the designers and the artists that way. And it's not, not like any of them have to actually go in and write all these formulas or anything, but they need to be able to understand when we talk about, when we talk about how tall a building is, we need a way to talk about that. We, they, the artist just can't say, I want to make that building really big. You need to say, how big? Is it 20 times bigger than the character? Um, if you want to be the guy who actually designs the game, like you're, you say, I got the, all these great ideas for a game. I just want to come up with what the person does. I want to make the puzzles. I want to make the level where they jump. So what do I need to know? Well, it turns out that some of the hardest part in making a game is the control, figuring out what, what controls we're going to give the players. It's obvious if you're doing a game where you're having somebody run around, you probably don't want the player to have to control where his hand is at any moment. You just want him to push forward and the guy runs or uh, pull back and he stops and that kind of thing. So figuring out the control is one of the issues. So, okay, I want to create a game, and some of you may recognize this game, but I'm creating a, a game where the player needs to jump the furthest. And um, so what, what do you think, does anybody have any ideas? If I want to make a game that is like, if they hit a button, it causes them to jump really far, what, what do you need to control? Would I have to, I'd need to control like how fast the player runs, right? So, because all you've played track and, and jumped, you know, the only way you jump real far is to run real fast, right? But the other thing that you might need to control is how, what the angle that you jump at is, right? You, you, you wouldn't necessarily, like, because if you just ran forward and didn't jump up, you wouldn't go very far. But if you jump too high, you just go straight up and come right down, right? So there's kind of that ideal angle, and part of the, the job of the game designer is to decide that kind of thing. So for a game like this, this is from track and field, where I want to decide how far a person jumps, one of the things that I give the player the control is I have some way of controlling how fast they go, and then I have some way of controlling what the angle that they jump at is, right? So as a designer, you need to say, oh, to make this fun, I need to control the speed and the angle. And then the programmers all do it, and the artists will make the little art of him moving and all that. But you have to think that way as a designer. Another thing, this is like really old Galaga, which uh, you can probably play on your watch now or something. But um, it's like the old Space Invaders. And, and what you get is everybody seen, have you ever seen a game like this where spaceships drop from the sky? Well, one of the things about that is you want those space when those spaceships drop, you don't want them just to zigzag all over the place, right? Because it would just hit you right away. You'd want it to be in a pattern. You want it to be like, oh, when this guy comes down, he kind of does an S-shaped turn, and I can dodge right, and I can dodge left, and I can do things. Um, or I want all these guys to come straight down, and then I want the next guy to kind of go back and forth, right? So as a designer, you might want to make that seem have a predictable pattern that the player could learn. If any of you have played like Pac-Man, you know that the ghosts move in a pattern. 
and you're able to run around and avoid them because they do the same kind of pattern. But it can't be so easy a pattern to recognize that it's not fun. If all they did was fall straight or occasionally move sideways and then fall straight, it wouldn't be any fun, right? So how, as a designer, do we make these things that look, you know, you think about it, how do you make something that comes down and looks interesting but is easy enough to play? So again, we use some kind of math things. And, and this is like, has everybody ever seen a sine wave before? One of these things? What we use is we, well, we can combine something that's really predictable, something that waves up and down really regularly, and we can combine them all. And by combining them, what you get is something here that looks more like a mountain, right? Or you get something like this that looks, it doesn't exactly look predictable. And what you can imagine is with this little swirly wave, if every time it goes up, the spaceship goes up the screen, and every time it goes down, it goes down the screen, you can see that what that spaceship would do is it would kind of go up and down and up and down in a little pattern. And in that pattern, you could learn to hide your ship when it was up high and then go around and come up in here. So by just using these little things, we can make this stuff that makes the project fun. Uh, the other thing is that from design, there's all these adventure games where you have to gather gold and buy swords and fight dragons and all this stuff. And the person, we, we have a game designer who all he does is he decides, well, when the, uh, when the snails attack Shrek, it does this amount of damage, and then when Shrek picks up the snails and throws it, it throws this far. And there's all these little, there's all these little numbers that the game designer manipulates to make the game fun. And he's always going back and he's tuning it, and that's that's kind of that person's job. Um, so they come up with these little little ideas like this that the damage that the character does is based on the strength plus some kind of randomness. And that's that's kind of some of the some of the things that they do. Um, so, what I want to do is now show you some of the different, some examples, and show you how we actually use this kind of in practice. Uh, this is from Prince of Persia uh, that was done about a year ago, and they're still doing it. And what you can see from this is they've got this character that does these crazy swinging, and the designers have to figure out things like how far can the guy jump so it's fun. And uh, uh, not only that, you saw, uh, you saw some of the particles that I was showing when the thing, um, he's going to swing. And he, the designer had to know that the, the little player can swing just far enough that he's going to land on that ledge. And you see all that little smoke coming off. That's all done with those little particle systems like we, we showed you before. And then he falls, and of course, not so good. Uh, oh, but let me, let me run that again so I can point out the, the little bit about the particles again. But from a designer standpoint, they had to place those swinging bars exactly. You see how he was all the way on his way down, and then he was able to catch that? And that all has to do with, and then those, all those rocks falling. That was just like those little, those little rain particles I showed you falling. And there's an animator who does all the little stuff of making him move sideways. And uh, again, the swing is like, oh, I need to turn around. So we have to have an animation of him turning around 180 degrees. No. Oh, this is, this is from Shrek that we just did. And this is when they just go to town and start going crazy and the police start, or the knights start attacking them. 
but that's actually not what I wanted to show. But you can see, you see all that stuff flying off every time anyone hits? And uh, th all that is like these little particles and, and little things that we're using. This was one of the m most fun, oh no, this isn't it either. Where is it? Chicken, yeah. Okay, this puzzle here, it, we have a little teeter-totter. And one of, the uh, one of the designers came up with this. One of the designers made, talked to an artist and said, make me a teeter-totter. And the designer said, asked the programmers, hey, could you make it so that if I jumped up and down, I could bounce like that? And then the designer said, you know, it would be really fun if when Shrek jumped, you went higher because Shrek is more heavy. And uh, when Shrek does a belly flop, eventually Shrek will do a belly flop, he goes really high. And so the programmer said, oh, that's no problem. We're just going to put a number that you can control as a designer that's how heavy is Shrek. And then by adjusting those numbers, they made a puzzle. See there, Shrek is the body slam. And Gingerbread Man goes way flying over the fence. And so the designer made puzzles. And it turned out they loved this mechanic so much that they put those kind of teeter-totter puzzles all over the place, right? And that was all the designer came up with. Us. Us programmers were like, yeah, that's a good idea. The other thing they did was part of this gag was you had to help Little Red Riding Hood get the chickens in the pot for the chicken soup. And, uh, and so this is kind of like a little golf game. And, and it was kind of tricky because anybody could hit the chicken, but when they hit it, we wanted it to go right into the pot. And, and so that ends up to be a little bit of a challenge because what if they kind of hit it sideways or something? So we had to figure, in fact, there's a miss. Um, we had to figure out how high do you have to hit the chicken so it's going to end up in the pot and look realistic. So uh, believe me, we had like day-long discussions about this. Like, how would we do that? How would we make it work? And so it is kind of funny when you talk to people about it and say, well, what did you do today? You know, I tell Margaret, well, what did we work on today? Oh, we had a, a three-hour argument about how big to make the splash when the chicken went into the pot. That's the, that's the kind of things we talk about. And, and if anybody knew that that's what we were talking about all day, they would be like, wow, that's a strange job you have. Oh, this is, this, is just a, this is a fight with Robin Hood and the Merry Men, but it just shows we, we had to coordinate. Um, oh, this is what I wanted to show on that, is Gingerbread Man, he, uh, he can jump up and throw his candy cane, and it acts like a boomerang, and it flies out, and it'll fly out, and it'll bonk into each of his enemies and then come back to him. And so the designers had to say, okay, well, when he throws it, if there's, you know, if I wanted to hit three of you in the room, what would be the best way? The best way wouldn't be to go here, then here, then here, then here. It wouldn't look right. So you had to figure out a way to make the candy cane kind of fly around the room and come back, but yet bonk off all the nights that it had to do on, on the way there. Let me see here. Oh, and here's a... We were talking about Sonic the Hedgehog. This is like Sonic Battle. So this is where, you know, you started out, we talked about Sonic way back in the uh, early days, and it was this really simple to do thing that a little artist did. And now you look at all this amazing, complex uh, thing of Sonic. And I'm playing this, and I'm really bad at Sonic, so that's why it's, I keep falling and doing things. Uh, but you can see that, that Sonic now, the, the key with Sonic from a design standpoint, everybody thinks about Sonic, they think he's really fast and likes to run a lot. So what the designers had to do was even in this 3D game, they have to make these giant hills where Sonic can run really fast. And, and they want to make these crazy loop-the-loop -loop things where he goes all the way around. And, and, and that was what was key to making that game successful, was change it over into this 3D world where you could do everything, 
And you, you can just see all that. Now that I showed you that, I hope you're seeing some of the elements that we talked about earlier. You can see the particle systems and, and things like the little reaching and, and um, all that stuff. We use all those as elements. And here's, um, this is the simple, like, cannon, right? And this is exactly that same math that I showed you that was like something falling. And we're using it again for this cannon mechanic. Um, we use it for the bounce. So what it is is a, a, a series of simple tools that come together and, and make this a better project. This might be a little hard to see. You see those little uh, points out there. All those represent, and you can see here on the side, left foot, upper head, left collar, whatever. All those represent each joint, and I was talking about the joints in the body. And uh, what, what you're going to see is it's a little hard to tell what's going on, but then when I play it, you can see what it is, right? You can all of a sudden see that it's a person walking along. And what we use is we use this kind of data to then uh, make the person move. Uh, here's a run. This is that same thing kind of running. And it looks really silly in this thing. Um, let me see what else I have. Oh, here's, here's what... Now, here's a frightened walk. And I think this was for a zombie game. I can't remember now. Um, but what, you, what we use that for is, anytime you see the player move in the game, all these little points, and a lot of times what they do is, have you seen on TV where they show people with ping pong balls all over their body, and they're running and they're doing, they call it motion capture. That's where this comes from, is they basically get a stunt man, and they put him in a suit with ping pong balls all over him, and the... Uh, uh, then the camera captures that, and from that they're able to get the motion. And then we take that same movement of the guy moving, and we put it on uh, an ogre or a monster or whatever, um, and make it move. And the reason that we, uh, we have things like the walk and the run, we have these just tell the guy, run real fast, now walk real slow. And then in the program, what we're able to do is combine the run and the walk to make it so it's smooth. And, and that's how we make um, the motion like, like this. All of that is, you see all these different moves? Those were probably all captured just like I showed you. But they're able to combine them all together and make something that seems real. real. Anyone have any questions? I, I, I kind of anticipated that you guys would have a lot of questions about what I did. And, and let's, start, let's start off with that. Go ahead. Okay, and we can go, go through some more stuff. Thank you all. Oh, I didn't realize that was period. So. Okay.